0: You listen to the entire series of Raise the Dead. And yet, despite hours of meticulously researched information being delivered by a charismatic host, there are yet still questions unanswered. Although now I will not be answering to history. History nor to the authors who wrote their works decades ago. No, now I will be answering directly to you, the listener. This is our mailbag episode. Because news dies and becomes history. But tonight, oh yeah, we raise the dead. All right, before we begin, let me just go ahead and get one more big thank you out there to everybody who listened. Obviously, this is something that took a lot of work, and your response to this series was inspiring. We are hard at work on season two, which hopefully will not take as long as season one did. It's a bit of a shorter idea, and I think... It mostly relates to some current political stuff. I'll tell you at the end of the episode. Let's get into the emails that were sent in. John writes, Did you make this podcast sympathetic to Nixon, or do you see it as non bias That bit where you use rumor and complete lack of any evidence or proof to tie Gunther Reinhardt to Kennedy makes me question if you are trying to say what happened or paint a person in your light. Almost every time you talked of Nixon, it is a sympathetic voice. When you talk of Kennedy, I could almost hear the disgust in your voice. Was Kennedy's treatment of Sammy Davis Jr. horrible? Yes, but you act as if the Kennedys were the only people acting this way at the time. You paint the candidates in today's sensibilities. Back then, if you thought a black person should have the same rights as a white man, you were very progressive. This is the 1960 election. Johnson didn't sign the Civil Rights Act until 1964, and it took another 10 years for the southern states to start acting right. That was the time all the campaigns were avoiding what they saw as the negative press by upsetting the Dixiecrats. All right, let's, let's take this one from the top. Is the podcast sympathetic to Nixon? This, honestly, was something that I assumed I would have gotten a lot more of, mostly because in my research, what I noticed more of was that Nixon is a different person on this side of the valley compared to 1968 and certainly compared to Watergate. Not to say that he's a good person. He's a different person. And what I wanted to do was make that clear. I wanted you, the listener, to understand Nixon as somebody that was a fresh face, was somebody who had a mastery of television, was somebody that obviously already at that point had a reputation for being a sharp elbows campaigner. But when the Kennedys are calling you a a, 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 a gutter campaigner, That's saying something now on the other hand, there is a necessary complication of the Kennedy family, really, if you want to regress to the mean of truth. So I guess what I'm saying is, yes, I was deliberately trying to portray Nixon as someone different than we commonly understand him, which is about Watergate. Because this isn't about Watergate. And yes, I wanted to make the Kennedys a little bit more real, which means talking about the decisions that they actually made as opposed to only highlighting the good stuff about them so we could tell a better story, or at least one that I thought hewed closer to the truth. Now, the funny thing about that is is that while I think personally... I tried to to recalibrate things on that level. Professionally, Raise the Dead to me is just a deconstruction of all the mistakes that Nixon made. And they are a highlighting of all of the electoral moves that the Kennedys made that eventually led them to the White House. So I, I, I don't think that I was deliberately trying to portray the Kennedys in disgust. Did they do some disgusting things? Yes. Do we not talk about those disgusting things all that much? No. Now, to the specific question of the Gunther Reinhardt issue. That's a very tricky one. And I understand getting flack for it, to be honest with you. It was just a a little piece of information that I felt we had enough of to say something about. And also, I thought it was very instructive of the era that Richard Nixon going to see a psychologist was something that could have crushed his career. We know that Richard Nixon, or at least his doctor, got a phone call from somebody pretending to be, or somebody who identified themselves as a reporter, we know that Nixon heard about it. We know that Nixon was pressing the medical records issue beforehand. We know he'd doing that. So I think there was enough there to say that this happened. Now, me indulging in the conspiracy theory of saying that it was likely the Kennedys that paid the private investigator, you know, that is me stepping into a flight of fancy. So I can understand getting flack for it. But ultimately, I thought it was worthwhile to the story and something that people largely have never heard of before. As far as Sammy Davis Jr. goes, man, I really wrestled with where to Where to put that and the Martin Luther King story? And I ultimately wound up putting them together to illustrate not that the Kennedys were racist, but rather that the Kennedys were calculating. And so if we're going to give the Kennedys credit for being progressives with the Martin Luther King situation, undeniable, save Martin Luther King Jr. from prison then we also have to understand that it, it came alongside them discarding Sammy Davis Jr. in a very cold way, in my opinion. So, so really what, what I wanted to say there was just as civil rights became more of an issue, it was, like all things in the Kennedy universe, played for maximum benefit without necessary adherence To any kind of larger doctrine. Dan writes. Love the show. Your performance brought the story that you wove to life. I didn't know much about the 1960 election. But hopefully you'll excuse my ignorance. Given that I'm Canadian. I do. In any case, it motivated me as a longtime listener to your hijinks with appearances on various Tom Merritt productions to finally listen and then support you on PX3 so I could pick up the extra episodes. As an academic librarian, I'm pleased that you listed the books you relied on on your website. In each episode, you thanked what sounded like Luca Mare or something like that for their awesome research. Confession, I haven't been able to figure out whether Luca Mare in Oakland is a person or a business. My DuckDuckGo skills fail me. I'm steeped in traditional academic research environments, uh, books, searching databases that index journals, following citation trails. So, approaches from outside academia really interest me. Can you talk more about the research process you used beyond being in a bar per your ebook preface and how you developed the overall narrative? So, I thanked in one of the episodes Lugo Mare. I might have, you know, my, 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 diction might not be up to snuff. Lugo Mare, L U G O M A R E, is a restaurant in Jack London Square in Oakland, California. It's one of my favorite places to get a drink on a Friday afternoon. How did I start researching? I do not have a background in academic researching. All of my history in terms of uh, researching stuff is from being a reporter and that is pretty much just read whatever you can, try to find any and everything you possibly can and read it. So, with the nineteen sixty election, the first book I read was "The Real Making of the President" by W. J. Rohrbach, and then I read "Making of the President." I I didn't do that for any particular reason, but from there, I just pretty much bought every book I could find on Amazon that that uh, related to nineteen sixty. And then, as I found little things, uh, either in Google research and finding various different threads, I would then get books that I knew weren't all about 1960, but had some element of it. The dark side of Camelot is is a good example of that. There's really not a lot about 1960, but one of the chapters is about Joe Kennedy and his connections to the mob. So that's where I got it. How did I develop the narrative? What I started out doing was putting all of the characters' individual stories together. So the initial idea for the show was going to be an episode on the Kennedys, an episode on Nixon, an episode on Frank Sinatra, an episode on the mob, and then one episode where we tied everything together. I was going to do, you know, uh, each of my own like Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, Hulk movies, and then do an Avengers to tie them all together. That wound up not working. Uh, And, and this is where I, I give Nina Ernst who uh, I, I was initially talking about working with on this project and uh, schedules wound up not working. But when I first, was sharing all of what I had with her. She's a fantastic podcast producer, worked for 30 for 30 and done a bunch of stuff. And uh, she's great. She was amazing. She recommended, hey, this is, you know, (laughs) just a big mess. You should think about doing things chronologically. And that's where we wound up settling. Past that, I really just wanted to have every episode build to a climax. I wanted every episode to kind of have a moment where you won or you lost, but our characters were changed for it. And so that's where, you know, the first episode is the Kennedy's losing the second episode is jfk winning the primary right and everything that goes into that third is nixon winning his convention but there being a fractured uh party coming out of it jfk winning in the uh winning in 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 the democratic national convention i guess the 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 final race one I guess the last two episodes are kind of a two parter, right? Because we have just build on, build on, build on, build on, build. And then the final episode, we kind of get the climax up front. I've always been a fan of television shows like The Wire. The Wire to me always did this the best, which is that they never did what would traditionally be your season finale last they would do that episode second to last. So the big character that dies, the big relationship, the investigation going belly up or finding their man, that would always happen in the second to last episode. And the last episode would kind of be epilogue. And I love that because, you know, it always sucks when you have a gigantic cliffhanger at the end of a season and then the first episode of the next season you got to kind of rush through how everybody feels about that while also starting your mystery for this season. So it's always like, oh, my God, I can't believe my mom's dead. But who's writing all these mysterious messages in our text uh, machines or whatever? I don't know why I said text machine. And so that that final episode, I wanted to get the, the big, I mean, it's kind of an anti-climax because you know that Kennedy wins and Nixon doesn't. Get that out of the way, get all the drama of that out of the way, and then we can get to the conspiracy, which obviously has been hanging over the, uh, the season the entire time. But the idea, narratively, was always to, to try to find the natural point where the human drama and the things that will make you understand this more kind of meet, and thankfully in politics, we get a lot of those because, you know, <laughs> there's primaries and there's conventions and there's general elections. So you, you kind of always have a, 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 a moment of finalities. Politics are like sports like that, where there are these natural breaking points. Justin writes, where can I get the T-shirt of the Raise the Dead logo that uh, Jerry wore on the Daily Tech News show? So I made myself a shirt of the logo off one of those just make a shirt apps. I I don't know if if we'll do merch. I mean, I, at some point maybe I'll put it up, but there's there's no plans as of now. Maybe for season two. Mike writes, just finished the Raise the Dead podcast. Fantastic. Wondering if in your research travels you came across any details on the below. That may not have been podcast worthy. Anything about Nixon's use of astrologers, notably uh, Jeannie Dixon. From what I've read, Jeannie was stuck uh, snuck into the White House to do readings for Nixon. And two, anything about Nixon's relationship to Charles Bebe Rebozo. Number one, I did not find anything about Nixon's astrology habit, although I will certainly be on the lookout for it going forward. Two, Nixon's relationship with Charles Bebe Rebozo. Indeed. Indeed, friend. I do have some tidbits for you. Number one, uh, he was by all accounts Nixon's best friend. Nixon was not a man of many friends, but Bebe was one of his dudes. When he meets up with Kennedy after the election, he is there visiting with Bebe Rebozo, who is in Miami, lives in Miami. And here's my favorite thing, and I'm so glad you emailed me because I wanted to find a place to put this in the show, and I guess it just slipped my mind. But among the favorite activities that Richard Nixon liked to do with his best friend, Charles Bebe Rebozo, was sitting quietly with each other in the same room while they both read and didn't talk to each other. (laughs) How amazing is that? That was their favorite thing to do. Hi, Dick. Hi, baby. You want to hit the den and silently read next to each other? I thought you'd never ask. So that's my best Charles Bebe Rebozo tidbit that was not podcast worthy. Marshall writes, love raise the dead was wondering if you consider doing a season where you look at Earth centric politics in Babylon five, pointing out the real world politics they were inspired by. Not that I'm currently rewatching Babylon five and cursing the way it still holds up. I think I made some mention while we were rolling out the show on Twitter that I would do a raise the dead style episode if the podcast ever breaks in to the top 200 of iTunes. You know, we got into the like we got I think the highest we peaked was at like the in the 60s of the news category. Uh if we could if we could do even better than that, uh I would I would think about it. Babylon 5 is outside of my realm. Uh, I'm more of a Star Trek guy or a Star Wars guy or a BSG guy than than a Babylon 5 guy, but you want to know what? Hell, if we hit the top 100, I'll watch Babylon 5. I'll do a Babylon 5 episode. How about that, Marshall? Jason writes, love, 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 love the show. I did feel that we spent way more time on Kennedy than Nixon. I, I sort of thought there would be a bit more of a balance. I also sort of was hoping to hear more about the parallels between Nixon and Hillary. I know that Kennedy-Trump was sort of the theme where they took advantage of the same things. I was just sort of hoping for a little bit more of the Hillary-Nixon parallels. I know there's a little and maybe I've glossed over it, but I'm also that guy after the Super Bowl that just wants to hear what the losing team has to say about the game and usually have to dig for more than one of those. I guess they just wanted it more type talk. All right. So, to be fair to Jason, this was written before the final episode came out, where we spent a lot of time discussing the exact parallels between Nixon and Hillary. Specifically, that, you know, Hillary is the only other person on the planet that can know what Nixon went through. You know, uh, Nixon, when we know him in this series, is a sweet summer child. He has no idea what is waiting for him. He has no idea what it's like to be a failed candidate. He has no idea what it's like to lose for the governor. He has no idea what it's like to then bide his time and come back to a, a Republican Party that's very well changed in 1968. And then look down the specter of running against a Kennedy again. The only person that really knows what that's like in any way close to it is Hillary, who orchestrated her own eight year tour of the valley. Now, granted, she didn't run for another office and lose again. So in that respect, Nixon still remains the king of pain. However... Nixon won eight years later. Hillary lost. And in that case, she might now hold that very, very, very sad championship. I probably could have spent more time hammering this in, but we'll run over some of the the short list of specifically the 1960 mistakes. The biggest and most obvious is a misallocation of time. Nixon does the 50 state pledge, spends a lot of time in places that aren't going to do him much good, and effectively outthought himself. Hillary Clinton, with the benefit of 56 years of technology, analytics, and everything else, still manages to outthink herself. Specifically, not campaigning in Wisconsin, not campaigning in Michigan, and The the, the classic blunder as to why is that the Clinton campaign doesn't want to make the Trump campaign think that they know that they're in trouble. That was the explanation. Was that we can't start canceling events and adding events in Michigan because then the Trump campaign and the media would know that we were changing course. That's another uh, uh, parallel is that Nixon and Hillary both have a severe distrust of the media. They don't like them. They, they believe that they are always on the wrong end of media coverage. And to a certain extent, many politicians don't like the media. That I think is what makes kind of, Trump and and Kennedy special is that while they don't trust the media per se they know what the media needs and they are very content to continue to scratch them where they itch the most Clinton and Nixon on the other hand just kind of want to avoid them and, and and are also kind of making decisions to avoid bad press which specifically matching up against the opponents that they have, is just a bad idea. Beyond that, the biggest parallels between the two are really the states of their parties. The state of the Republican Party in 1960, to me, looks a lot like the state of the Democratic Party in 2016, specifically when it comes to ideologically led insurgent elements of that party. Which leads us to our final email from Carl. Carl writes, Just finished the last episode and found the entire series to be fantastic. During the series, you would touch on the role of Barry Goldwater in the Republican Party and the short and long term results of his influence, the loss in, in the 1964 election, and then the later Reagan Revolution. Do you see Bernie Sanders as playing a similar role in the Democratic Party? If he is the nominee, are they headed for similar results? Carl, my boy. You win the prize. Indeed, I believe that. Indeed, I think that there are a lot of comparisons between 1964 and 2020. And when I started thinking of a follow-up, I had a couple thoughts go through my mind. One of them was, I didn't want to leave you guys waiting for a long time. I think that, There was a worth in trying to get out a shorter series before I dug in and did something of the the width and breadth of season one, specifically since I'm going to be very busy with my current politics podcast because, well, we're in election year. So when I thought about shorter episodes that I could do, I was thinking about doing a one off comparing Bernie Sanders to Barry Goldwater. And then I started reading. And the biggest thing that I found was in 1964, all of our friends are back. All the characters that you know and love are very active in this next election. And boy, do they have adventures and hijinks to get into. And so season two of Raise the Dead will be out this year and it will answer one central question. How do you kill a revolution? First, you need to know what it looks like. So let's define it like this. An ideological movement spearheaded by the only man who could. Someone so defined by an unbending purity that they are followed by millions. It's a splinter group, yet so explosive, it threatens the majority. Sure, every once in a while, there's an outside third party threat, but that can be squashed by party tribalism. The real problem is when the call comes from inside the house. When card-carrying party members decide the status quo isn't enough. This is a problem that periodically devils the leadership of our modern political duopoly. The folks at the head of the table are charged with maintaining order, that universally means nothing can change too fast, which perpetually puts them at odds with insurgents. It's something we see right now in the Democratic Party with Bernie Sanders, a man so critical of the party, he doesn't count himself a member of it. Bernie takes principled positions and has for decades as an independent senator. Amongst the DC crowd, at least the ones that I've talked to, he's historically been a bit of a joke. The reliable curmudgeon asking for impossible solutions to even the most minor problems. But in a world of constant settling triangulation and a shattered monoculture, something has happened. Social media connected all the stragglers who agree with the ideologue and together, they realized at once they are legion. Sure, they weren't the majority but they had a distinct advantage. They don't have a backup plan. For them, this isn't a game There's no second-place escape hatch. They are locked in for one man based on his ideas and record. So, let's say you run the DNC and it's your job to make sure that the change Bernie is asking for isn't implemented too Fast. I will ask you our central question again How Do you kill A revolution Well you look to the time it happened before You look to the playbook You look to 1964 You look To Barry Goldwater News dies and becomes history. But next season? Oh yeah. We raise the dead. hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>